Friends, as we continue in worship, um, this is the last week of our sermon series in which uh, we are going to spend some time in an uncomfortable text as we have for several weeks. Um, And so as we prepare, I invite you to prepare your hearts and your minds as Rebecca leads us in this musical meditation. Quite ready, hold on. So as we've been doing for the last several weeks, I invite you to prepare, as Josh said, um, to come out of our comfort and then receive God's challenging message for us today. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come out, come out of your comfortable spaces. Come meet Jesus in the difficult places. Our scripture reading is from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Will you read with me? Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Will you pray with me? Gracious and loving God, we give thanks this morning to sit with this text in community with one another, to read these words and see and know the pain that have been caused, and yet that there is reason behind these words. There is intention and conversations. And so as we engage in that work together, as we engage in the work of the church and the ways that you have called us to live out the work of Jesus and to proclaim a gospel filled with hope and love, may we do so faithfully. And in that means to call out sin, to seek repentance, and to continue to live out the good work you have called us all into. And we pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
Good morning, everyone. It is uh, a joy to be with you all in person. My name is Josh Esparza. I am one of the associate pastors here at White Rock and also the campus pastor at Owenwood. And so if you aren't familiar with Owenwood, it is our, our second campus. It's just two miles down the road. It's on the other side of Ferguson. Um, and it, it is our commitment to the work that is happening here in Far East Dallas. It is our commitment to continuing to engage in work that is uh, maybe a little creative, a little out of the box. Um, and what's really exciting is that as I talk about our work to other people, um, I usually get a little bit of a head tilt. Uh, there, there may be some unfamiliarity with the idea that the church can come in and engage in the work that we're trying to do, both addressing the spiritual needs and addressing the, the food insecurity and, and our desire to create asset development within our community. Uh, but there's also this idea that Owenwood looks a little different from Sunday mornings. Um, that, that I'm here on Sunday mornings, not at Owenwood. Um, and, and maybe there's some people in our conversations, too, um, where they just don't really see the connection between the two. That there's a little bit of a hesitancy, a little bit of weariness, a little bit of um, reluctance to maybe say that the work that we do is the work of the church. And I think this work, that, uh, this feeling that is invoked in these conversations when we talk about Owenwood um, is really a similar space that we come into this text this morning. That as we read this text, as we have pondered with it, as we, um, some of you may have read this in preparation for this morning, that there is an unsettled tension here. Um, that there is an, an opportunity for us to create space, to be honest about what we feel, uh, maybe even to say, like, we wish this wasn't here, a rejection, but we, but we are still compelled to engage with it because it is a part of what we hold to be sacred. And that this text, honestly, makes it harder for the church to do the work of the church. That there are people who have heard this text, who have been silenced, who have been hurt, who have been oppressed, and who have vowed to never come back. And yet we sit here and we hold it, and we ask, what, what do we do? We wrestle with God. And I think as we do this work, it's important for us to come back and say, like, well, how do we do this work well? And I know Mitchell said a couple of weeks ago um, that, that we take the Bible seriously, but not literally. And I think that has been a really helpful framework in the way that we engage this work, that we are not committed to just saying the Bible has no meaning, but we also understand that as we change, our relationship to the Bible changes. That in our wrestling and in our space of navigating what is true or what isn't or, or what is good and what is not, that this wandering space is both holy and also a part of the journey. That we see in our text that wandering and striving and longing to know who God is and what God is calling us into is all a part of our faith. And so this morning as we engage in this text, may we take comfort in knowing that this this journey of tension, of unknowing, is a part of our holy, sanctifying process. That as we grow, we continue to grow both in community and in our own spiritual journeys. And so as we engage in this text, I think it is, it's helpful that we, we have a little bit of primer and context on what's happening here in 1 Timothy. Um, first, we, we should name the fact that there, these, 1 Timothy is a part of this collection of pastoral epistles. So that, that's 1 Timothy, that's 2 Timothy, and that's Titus. 
And if you go in and you do some research, whether that's on Reddit or Google or wherever you find your source of information, you, you're going to see a community of people really navigating and debating who really wrote these texts. Uh, there, there's strong arguments that the Apostle Paul wrote it. There are strong arguments that say um, the literary style of these epistles do not match Paul's other writings. And, and there's really no clear-cut answer. So for us this morning, as we navigate a lot, let's just operate with the assumption that Paul has written these texts. Let's operate with this idea that Paul is writing to Timothy and that Timothy is a part of Paul's inner circle. Timothy is someone that Paul trusts well. Timothy is someone who Paul praises throughout these pastoral epistles. And Timothy is someone who who Paul sends in to do the dirty work. That Timothy is here in Ephesus receiving this letter as the church is growing, and Timothy's primary responsibility is to teach sound doctrine within the church, which gets us into our text of where we are right now. That this text of doctrine, intention, and value has had some ripple effects throughout history. That this text has been one of the most controversial pieces of scripture. And actually, personally, this text has been a part of my faith journey for for most of my call to ministry. That I did not grow up in the United Methodist Church, that I witnessed this text being used in harmful ways. And I'll tell you what, every time I went to a board meeting or a committee meeting during my ordination, and they read that I did not grow up Methodist, uh, this was always a part of the conversation. They always wanted to know where I stood, would I perpetuate harm or not, and would I empower women in ministry in the work that we do together. And that's something I deeply appreciate about our denomination, but especially the process. That there was recognition that this has been a problem and both an invitation to participate in creating good for generations to come. So these books, 1 Timothy, 2 and Titus, they're, they're actually like letters, right? We know this work. We, we, we see the greetings at the beginning. We see that Paul is greeting Timothy and that there is this conversation that's taking place. We don't know what, what Timothy is relaying back to Paul. And so we engage in this text recognizing that there is one lens in which we can really see what's happening. There's one part of the conversation that is taking place. And that as the church in Ephesus is growing, this is, this is what gets Paul worked up. Like, this is what Paul is here for, for growing the church, for inviting new people into the work of the kingdom, for proclaiming the gospel message. Like, like it makes sense as we're reading this work of what we see about Paul, even before his transformation from Saul to Paul, that this is, like, this is his wheelhouse. And as he's writing to Timothy, he cares so deeply about what happens in the church. He cares so deeply about where these people are and the work and impact that they can have that he is instructing them significant ways in which to form the church. But there are other parts of the church, rituals, traditions, that we don't continue to practice today that were practiced back then. And I think it's important for us to, to recognize these things. Some of these things are, are small and, and, you know, you may giggle when you think about them. Like, do, do you have polyester in your clothes right now? Probably, technically, you're not supposed to do that if we're, if we're going by what the Bible says, right? Do we eat shellfish? Most of us do. 
uh, unless you have an allergy or, or a preference not to. Are women, um, when they come to church, do they wear head coverings? No, not really, but that is a part of the text that we do. Do we greet each other with a kiss? Definitely not right now. Uh, <laughs> But, but even before that, we, I, I guarantee you, nobody was greeting me with a kiss when we were here pre-COVID. Uh, and so, like, there, there are parts of the text that we no longer do, that we have seen, that we have grown, that we have developed and said, like, this is no longer necessary. We, we see what prevalence has had then, but we're, we're going to move on. But for some reason, we've taken this Second Timothy text— and it has been integrated into our society, into our DNA, into the work of our churches that has been actively exclusive to the wisdom and power and competence of the women that surround us. And the reality is, as, as much as I want us to invite into a deeper conversation of this text, as we dig in and read, um, sometimes we, get, we can say, like, maybe this text doesn't actually mean what it says. Like, maybe we can go back into this text, we can read the Greek, we can see the decisions in which which interpretation said what, and maybe there's a different way to interpret this. And I can't. This text says exactly what it said back then. I can't make reason out of that. I can't tell you why this author may have chosen this translation choice, because the reality is what we see is what we get. So how can we as people of faith, commit ourselves to the work of the church, knowing that this is a part of our tradition, that this is a part of the scripture that we hold holy, that we commit to, that we preach from, and that we, we believe God is known in. How can we hold both things to be true? And I think some additional context probably is helpful. That Paul is writing against a group of young women who had engaged in the church at this time. That these women were promiscuous, they were, they were spreading unorthodox ideas. Remember, big red flag, that's a big deal to Paul. They are interrupting services, they're taking advantage of the church widow's funds. And, and so Paul is hearing and seeing these things. And, and these women who are a part of this, they are a part of a fertility cult of Artemis. And in fact, these women are being so disruptive that it isn't just Paul who's stressed out about this. Uh, actually, Caesar and the Roman government make adjustments. They, they institute clothing policies on how women are supposed to be dressed, even for like prostitutes, uh, because there is a baseline here that the, these women are being disruptive. And if these disruptive women are also a part of the church, then this also creates an additional layer of tension that is present between the government and the church, which we have also seen, does not play out well. So, so Paul is writing this. Paul is trying to make this claim, saying that this is, what, this is what we need to protect from. And there, there's this theologian, Scott McKnight, who says, Paul's concern is that with some untrained women who are morally loose, who are forming unformed theological ideas, that they are not to be allowed to have any voice in the church. And I think there's some, there's some credence to this. But perhaps we, we build on this idea a little bit, that Paul's thoughts were saying, we should not allow harmful people in positions of power to lead our churches. 100%. But that goes for both sides. That includes men and women. 
that we also have seen historically the detrimental things that men have done in leading churches just in our city, just in our state, and in our history. That this is not specifically towards just women, but we should prevent, we should actively work against harmful people leading our churches of any gender. And let's also call a spade a spade for a second. That the men in charge here at this time, they dictated which was both acceptable and unacceptable for women. And that the agency that women had in which they were not allowed to act was also controlled by men. So it was easiest for Paul to make a passing judgment, not to enter into in conversation, not to experience life with these women, not to navigate what are they experiencing, what are they longing for, what are they looking for, where does the gospel have an opportunity to transform, change who we are in the way that Jesus did. But instead, Paul enters into the space and says, let's silence, let's exclude, and let's ignore. And this is the solution to our church. This is how we maintain our integrity. This is how we grow. The irony is that, that that wasn't Paul's experience. That wasn't the experience that we see in the ministry of Jesus. And that isn't how we see the church grow throughout history. That in our wrestling with the Bible, it's important for us to be honest. That this text has something meaningful us, for us today but it was also written in a particular time and culture in which patriarchy was prevalent. That as we, our understandings of the world has changed, just like our understanding of germs, things have changed a lot in how, what we know about germs in the past two years, we recognize that the words of Paul are not forever and were not meant to be universally true. And what I'm gonna do here is, is I'm gonna define patriarchy for us. That patriarchy is a social system in which men uphold power and are the predominant roles in leadership, moral authority, social privilege, and control property. Privilege both, patriarchy both invalidates the experiences, silence voices, and assumes that men know what's best for women. But there's no desire to come alongside the, the journey in which women have to navigate. And that when we wield this power, it becomes harmful. So how has patriarchy been used throughout history? Really, it's simple. It's been used to create order for our societies. And, and in that, it has intentionally caused harm, or unintentionally, but harm nonetheless, and has demonstrated to us that, that there is an opportunity for us to name where that comes short. That as a party in power, myself included in that, it is easy for me to benefit from systems that are designed for us and other men. That we, in that work, in which we have been implicit about and explicit about, we have missed out opportunities in the way women can use their prophetic voice. And to distill women's roles and values to their gender is both offensive and drives people away from the gospel. That when women speak, we must listen. That women in this church, I'm, I'm looking at some of them directly here, have shaped and formed me as a person and as a pastor that I will take with me for the rest of my life. 
that women in this church have committed to the work that's happening both here at White Rock and at Owen Wood and have invested their time, their attention, their energy, their creativity, their passion, and their dollars, that the gospel may be known, that I may have an opportunity to be here before you to preach a word of hope, of grace, and love, and that these women are not unique to this space, and that perhaps most of what's happened is that we have failed to listen and recognize what these women had an opportunity to give us. And really I say this because going back to growing up pre-Methodist, my ministry experience was recognizing that as, as a young man who really didn't know anything about the world, he was able to witness and see that there were women capable and competent in the work that was happening in our ministries, but they weren't allowed to lead. They weren't paid fairly. Their ideas weren't listened to. And they were forced to just do a very specific, narrow framework of what ministry was for them. And this became particularly prevalent when uh, I, I got my first full-time job and I disclosed to a colleague of mine who I really respected how much I made. And, and she disclosed to me that that was only a few thousand dollars more than her. And I was in my early 20s and she was in her early 30s. And she was both happy for me in securing this employment, but also conflicted and frustrated and angry that she had committed herself to a people and a congregation that did not value her. And the second thing that made this really apparent for me is that, uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but Victoria um, is really brilliant. And Victoria has a lot of things to say, and, and Victoria's been teaching me things for a long time. And, and I often um, felt the tension of Victoria had something present to the ministries in which I was leading or a part of, and every time I tried to create an opportunity for that to happen, my response was always the same. The response was, absolutely, Victoria can speak as long as you're in the room. Absolutely, Victoria can speak, but if you hear something, you, you might need to engage and interrupt. And if you're not there, she can't talk. We don't know what she would say. What could she do? And these discrepancies really are what, what began to push me outside of that community that I called home for most of my life. It recognized that there were limitations here, that there was, there was literal wisdom and potential and opportunities for ministry that were present, that were being left at the table because men in power recognized that, were not willing to speak to that and validate it, and instead said, we would rather not have it at all than figure out how to create space for all of it. So I was, I was forced and led to find a different way forward. Because we believe that though this text is holy, though this text is meaningful, that it changes as we change. Our, our relation to it changes. And so right now, I'm going to be really honest and vulnerable here. I'm going to say that like men, men in this room, like we, we need to repent. Like we must act and be uh, aware of the harmful behavior that we have done. And we must work against a patriarchy that is both prevalent in the places outside of the church and especially in the church.
And to the women in this room, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for the ways you have had to work around the barriers, the hurdles, the exclusion, and honestly, our own incompetence so that you may live into the ways God has created you to be. I felt particularly compelled to make that statement because on Friday, I, I had a wonderful coffee meeting with Linda Muter and Leela James, and we were talking about um, United Methodist Women. We were talking about the work that they've done here at White Rock, the ways that they have been engaged for decades and decades here. And Katie Pryor, my colleague, my, my equal over at Owenwood, our director of neighborhood initiatives, she has spent a lot of time working with United Methodist Women for several years. And so I have learned just uh, through osmosis what the work has happened with United Methodist Women. And I, I, at some point earlier this year, a light switch went off. And I realized the work of United Methodist Women and the work of Owenwood mirror really well. But there is intention, there is commitment to social advocacy, justice, care, change, the uplifting of marginal voices. And so we met on Friday to begin to think about what does United Methodist Women here at White Rock look like from here on out in our congregations, both here at White Rock and at Owenwood. How can we continue to do this work? Because United Methodist Women has been around for over 150 years. So we have seen these women lean into their call, resist the patriarchy, resist the burdens, resist the hurdles, and continue to live into the work that God has called them to with or without the church's help. And so what we see here with United Methodist Women is that these women are the foremothers who advocated in the ending of lynching, improve women's health, raise women's status in society, organize for fair wages, and benefits for workers and families. And this year in particular, the big things that they're working on is both climate justice and racial justice. Like these are the women doing the work of the church. This work matters and their work matters. But particularly in this moment, I would say this work matters because of the ways they have resisted the way men have, have resisted them. And so here, here's what I want you to know about why United Methodist women here at White Rock. They have their first meeting in September post-pandemic. Well, we're still in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, but you, you get what I'm saying. They also have their annual meeting in October, and we're working to create what this looks like here at Owenwood um, as well. And so if that is something you're interested in, if, if United Methodist Women gets your gears going, if that gets you excited about the work, um, we want to enter in conversations with you. We, we are engaging a new imagination of what this work looks like. And I'm grateful for the ministry, the commitment that they've had, and quite honestly, the resilience of the women who have been a part of this for over 150 years. That the work of the United Methodist Women is both ecumenical, it's invitational, and it's the way they have mobilized in the church. And as we celebrate United Methodist Women, I think it is important for us to recognize this piece too. That Paul, remember there's some discrepancies here, Paul does affirm the work of women in other contexts. That Paul recognizes the, the discernment that Timothy carries, the leadership, his theology, and he gives credit and he celebrates and he praises Timothy's mother and his grandmother. That Paul recognizes Timothy would not be who he is if it weren't for the women in his life. That's certainly true in my life. 
Paul also recognizes Junia as an apostle, Phoebe as a deacon. So there is some some recognition here that, that women bring something profound and significant to the table. So what we see here is that patriarchy and the sin of patriarchy is really focused on a few things. It's focused on power, it's focused on exclusion, and it's focused on dominance. And that the more that is available for others, then the less that they're available for us. This is a scarcity mentality. It is um, held with close hands, and it is the antithesis of what Jesus invites us into. That as we resist the sin of patriarchy, we do this as we validate the experiences of women, and we commit to do better. And the way we do that, a few ways, but a couple that I was thinking of is uh, we, we aren't the first person to speak as men if there's a room filled with women in it. We listen. We see what they have to say first. We take seriously the words that women tell us. So, so no gaslighting, no dismissiveness, no, no acting like this is an abnormal thing to be heard. And we empower women to lead and receive criticism from women openly and not with hostility. This is the work that we do to reject this. And, and maybe some of you are looking at me and saying like, Josh, like, okay, we get what you're saying, but aren't you just making the Bible say what you want it to say? Probably. But, but don't we all do that? Do we all come to the text with a blank slate, with no preconceived notions, no contextual understanding, no life experiences, anything that can, that can influence our understanding of what Scripture says and just, we just take it for what it is? I would say actually the opposite is true, that, that this text is holy, that this text has maintained relevance for over 2,000 years because there is not one way to interpret it. There is not one way for it to be true that it has shaped and changed us in the ways that we grow and understand who we are. That Paul was Saul prior, and the way his ministry has changed was radically influenced by who he understood Jesus to be. And our ministries will continue to change and grow and challenge and shape us as we engage in our journeys of spirituality, as we engage in the work of Jesus, and as we continue to allow the gospel to transform us. That the hope of the gospel is tied to Christ's love and empowerment of all people. It gives life, it empowers voices, and it liberates our souls. So let us experience this liberation together. Amen.